The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, if you could find your place in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 today. As you're finding your place there, I want to ask a question, though, to kind of get your minds headed in the right direction. What does it mean to presume? Another word, another word for that, another way of saying that. Uh, what does it mean to take something or someone for granted? So just think about that concept, that question. To presume or to take for granted. As you're thinking about it, I want to give you two illustrations. One is in human terms, one's in spiritual terms. So in human terms, it would look something like this. This is just one of many examples. Uh, Darlene and I have three children, and so there was a time when they were much younger, and there was actually a time when we had two children in a little bit longer space than before Sarah was born, so then we have three. So at, one, at, at points when they are much younger, it would look like this. We would ask either my parents or her parents, hey, we need to do this or we've got this to go to. Is there any possible way uh, you could watch your grandkids for just a, a little bit of time, like a few hours, just we, so we can go do this or that? Uh, is, is there any possible way you could do that? And we'd ask, and one or the other of them would say, sure, no problem. And we would thank you so much. We really appreciate it because I don't know how we could make this work. We've got this meeting to go to or this dinner to go to or something, or maybe we just want to go and just be for a little while, just the two of us. And we just, you know, I don't think we could do that otherwise without your help. So thank you so much for doing that. Okay? So then, the next time that happens, maybe it sounds similar. Hey, we, we've got this to go. Is there any possible way you could spend some time with the kids and then we could go off and do this? Sure, no problem. Okay, then after a period of time, you ask that question. Maybe now, you know, over the... I mean, you're talking about over the life of your kids. Maybe it's... Um, Maybe you've asked a hundred times, you know, over a period of years. And, and he, so here's what it would look like to presume or to take for granted. Pick up the phone. Hey, you need to watch the kids for us this, this day and time. And, and then, then, but then maybe, maybe there's not even a thank you so much or we're so, so grateful for that. Thank you for, for doing that for us. Then, it, then it's just an, a, a presumption you're going to watch our kids because we've got something to do. You see how that works? You see how it, how it transforms from uh, an honest question with a lot of gratitude and an understanding of, hey, you've got lives too, you've got stuff to do too, uh, so we don't want to just assume you'll do this. We, we, we would hope that maybe you'd, you'd find a benefit being with your grandkids also, but, but we're not trying to assume that you just automatically are going to be able to do this. So it goes from a, a, a question and an answer to a presumption of, or maybe it even goes this far to where in our own conversations, maybe Darlene and I would say to ourselves, oh, well, how are we, we, we got 
we need to go do this, but, you know, the kids have got something, you know, how, how are we going to take all of us to this? And then maybe we would say to each other, that's all right, we, we'll, get, we'll get so-and-so to, to, to watch them for it. It'll be all right. They'll do it. They'll do it. Don't worry about it. So then there's a, a presumption. There's a, I'm going to just take for granted that that's going to happen. I'm not going to even think that it's a possibility that it wouldn't happen. Okay? So in human terms, that progression from asking a question and hoping for a, a positive answer moves from there to an assumption, oh, well, what else could they have to do that would be important as this? Right? Everybody okay? All right. That's a human terms illustration. Here's a spiritual terms illustration. I've, I've done something that is contrary to God's word. I know in my heart it was wrong, sinful even, and I'm, I'm tore up about it. And in my heart, in my soul, I'm feeling really convicted. And I'm, I might even shed some tears. And I'm going into my room, I'm shutting the door, and I'm going to spend some time in prayer. And I'm going to pray, God, I, I've, man, I've messed up. I've really messed up. Um, please forgive me. Please, please forgive me. I know I've messed up. I, I know I've sinned against you. I've just, I've I made a bad decision. Uh, I've, I've really, really uh, done wrong. Please forgive me. And, and emotionally, there's some, some weight on you. And you spend time in prayer, and you, you know God's faithful, but you also know, man, I, I really messed up. And you pray, you ask for forgiveness, you confess your sins, you're, you're broken over it, and God, of course, restores you, He forgives you, He, he gives you a sense in your spirit, in your heart, that He's with you, He still loves you, and He hasn't changed, and you're forgiven because of His grace and mercy and His great love. You're forgiven. Now fast forward. Maybe that happens more than once, over and over. And maybe you get to a point where in your heart you think, oh, it'll be all right. God will forgive me. It'll be okay. I'm, on, I'm, I'm covered with grace, right? It'll be all right. It's not that big a deal. I mean, I know I messed up, but I mean, it'll be all right. Because God, you know, God's faithful. He's always going to forgive me. The Bible says, he's, you know, once we're Christians, we're saved, He's always going to forgive me. It'll be okay. And so what, what's happened? What, what's happened between here and here? Something's happened to our heart, right? Because our hearts maybe become a little, little calloused, and now the thing that broke our hearts before, maybe now it's, oh, that's not that big a deal. Because God, you know, God is love, God is gracious, God is merciful, God's forgiving, He's faithful. He, he'll always forgive, right? It won't, it's, not that big, it's not that big a deal. Really? See, what that looks like is, now I've taken for granted that God is just going to automatically forgive me. Now, is God, uh, is God changing or is He unchanging? Is his character the same or is it uh, different day to day? Now, he, he's always the same, right? 
But that, that's what makes him God. His, his characteristics are perfect. And they never change. He's always perfectly loving and perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful and perfect in his forgiveness. But the, the thing that has changed is our hearts. Because we have gotten so comfortable, maybe become so comfortable in the fact that we've sinned that, that we just presume on God's grace and we presume on His forgiveness and we just take for granted that He loves us and that it's going to be okay. So then the effect is not that He's changed, it's that we've changed. Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me? So, so God has never changed. He's always going to love and forgive and be gracious and merciful. But the, the unfortunate change is that maybe my heart has become more comfortable with my sin. And, and maybe, I think, I would never say this, maybe out loud, but maybe the truth is, I believe God is okay with my sin. And He's not. Just because He's forgiving and gracious and merciful doesn't mean He's okay with what we're doing. That, that was good, by the way. That, that was really, we, we need to digest that. So today, we're just five verses, just five verses in chapter 3 of Hosea. That's the whole chapter, by the way. But what we're going to see here is how Hosea is asked to do something very difficult in a way that will demonstrate what God does for us, what God did for Israel and what He does for us. So with that in mind, with that concept, uh, presuming and taking for granted, let's read this text. I'll, I'll read it. You follow along. The, the scripture will be up there on the screen. And then we'll talk for just a minute about what this means for us. Hosea chapter 3, beginning verse 1. This is what the Bible says. The Lord then said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I brought her, I bought her, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, or without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts today. Help us that we would be servants to your word and not attempt to make your word servants to us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this text, although it's short... This may be one of the most powerful sections of this prophecy we've encountered yet. 
in the first three chapters. Now, I'll remind you the structure of how this has worked thus far. You have uh, an opening narrative section that kind of sets the stage. Then you have a section about judgment. Then you have a section about hope. Then another section about judgment. And then uh, you have a narrative section. Okay, this is the narrative that finishes that first little section of the first three chapters. So this is going to tell us some more about the story, but the meaningful nature of what happens in this part of the story, we just really, I believe, we cannot afford to miss what happens here uh, in, this, in this section. Actually, I think I just misspoke a moment. Let me correct this. Narrative, hope, judgment, hope, narrative. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Just want to make sure I got it. Got it straight here before we proceed. So in today's passage, five verses separated really into two sections. The first part tells us what God has asked Hosea to do. And if you remember, the reason why he's asked Hosea to do something is because Hosea is not only the prophet, but he's having to live out what God's message is to Israel He's living through it, and then he's proclaiming it to the people. So here's what happens. Hosea, number one, Hosea takes back his unfaithful wife. In the first three verses of this chapter, you see Hosea is told to, quote-unquote, remarry Gomer, even though she is an adulteress. So his command in verse 1 is to demonstrate what God is going to do for Israel. And see, Israel had multiplied experience of God's loving kindness and tender mercy, but in spite of all the benefits that God gives, they had, uh, and they were great, I mean, all of God's benefits, but they were still ungrateful and unfaithful, even though God was still good. God was still blessing them, and, and that they were still... Um, called God's people, and yet they were completely ungrateful for everything God was doing. They were unfaithful to God because they were chasing after idols, which makes no sense. Uh, you could look at it in, in human terms, maybe a, a parent or a loved one, maybe someone is just continually being good to you, showing kindness to you, and it's almost as if you just spit in their face with, their, with our actions. We, we have a, a, an unfortunate... Uh, proclivity to where we might just treat someone poorly despite the fact they're treating us really, really well. So this is the, the picture of what Hosea is going to do. Go again and love a woman. Go remarry this unfaithful adulteress because Israel has treated God the same way and God is going to quote-unquote remarry Israel even though she turns to idols and the sacrifices of idols. So the contrast here was realized in God's love for Israel despite their spiritual adultery, worshiping other gods. Now one thing that's odd to me, and maybe you picked up on this when we read it, the very end of verse 1. Up until that last little word, I was kind of tracking with it, but then it says, uh, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. And I was like, why is that a thing? Why, why is that such a good detail there that they love raisin cakes? Okay, well, here's the thing. These raisin cakes that he's talking about were considered a luxury. Okay, so in this context, in this culture, it was, it was a delicacy. It was a, a luxury. Not just anybody could have that. 
And so the fondness for something like this indicated the, the tendency of God's people to crave this almost sensual indulgence, something really special. And they craved it. And so it was something that they attributed to their idols. So they thanked the idol they were worshiping for this luxury they were enjoying. Does that make sense? So, so that's why the fact that it was mentioned uh, as a bad thing, okay, because it was, it was not something typical. So figuratively, it was the service belonging to idol worship. So it all was wrapped up in this, in this sin of spiritual adultery. Now, maybe the most significant part of this story is right here in verse 2. And it's not readily visible, okay, until you really break it down. So let, let me just tell you the significance of verse 2. You see that... Hosea, it's kind of first person here, God told him to go find his unfaithful wife and quote unquote remarry her. But look at verse 2, it says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Now on first read that might seem, okay, I don't get it. Here's why that's significant. He bought her. He redeemed her for a price. Anybody connecting the dots here? Jesus Christ went to a cross and paid a terrible price. He bought us. He, he bought us back. And by the way, you know what the price is? Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. You know what a homer and a half of barley was equal to? Fifteen shekels of silver. You know what fifteen plus fifteen is? Thirty. You know what thirty shekels of silver is? The price of a slave. You know what else it was? It was the cost of betrayal. When Judas Iscariot agreed to betray the Messiah into the hands of sinners... He was paid 30 pieces of silver. And ironically, but not surprisingly, that's the price Hosea had to pay to redeem his unfaithful bride. I, I don't know if the Scripture could paint us a more clear picture of what has just happened. This this one verse is a picture of the gospel. Jesus paid a price to purchase an unfaithful bride. See, when you connect the gospel story and the actions of Christ on our behalf and see it in a, in a prophecy that was written 750 years before Jesus was even born in physical form. And you understand what has happened and you, you think of verses like Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 where the Bible says that God demonstrated His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our acts together, 
Not after we repented and started to follow His path and do what He said and follow His commandments. Not, not after all that. Before all that. The word in Romans 5.8 is, is sick, unhealthy. While we were still sick and unhealthy sinners. That's when Christ died. See, this is a, just a, a fringe benefit of the truth of Scripture is that this, this is how we know that we can't earn our way to heaven. This is just another instance where that's shown to us because you can't be good enough. You take all your goodness, your, your best actions on your best day when you think you have really knocked it out of the park for Jesus. You're abs- you, you, you get to the end of the day and you think, man, today was good. I, I, my sin was minimal. I, I, did, I, I read my Bible. I prayed. You know, it was like everything fell into place. I really had a good day for the Lord today. Well, whenever you have that day, just remember, you're still a sinner. You still need Jesus. Nothing we can do will ever be enough to earn Forgiveness or salvation. No matter how good we are, for how long, it doesn't matter. We're good not to earn salvation, but because we've been given salvation. It's a response to God's grace. It's not an act to try to earn God's grace. Does that make sense? So when, when Scripture tells us here that Hosea went and found, sought, he pursued an unfaithful bride, and brought her back and paid a price for her, a specific price. It's a picture of Jesus and the Gospel. He's pursuing us despite our unfaithfulness, despite our sinfulness, and He's bringing us home. Look look what verse 3 says. You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I also will be toward you. Hosea shows his wife that her life of adultery is officially over. And so she was going to be isolated with Hosea in order to promote complete faithfulness. See, that, that's what Jesus... You ever wonder why uh, God seems to always ask us, Hey, you need to spend time with me. You need to be present in Bible study. You need to be present in worship gatherings and fellowship with the church. You need to be here. You need to be a part of things, be engaged. You know why God continually asks us to do that? Because He's trying to promote our faithfulness. You need to be isolated. Spend time with me, He's saying. Now, think about that statement. Think about why would God have to ask us to spend time with Him. Shouldn't it be enough that Jesus came to this earth and died? Shouldn't we want to spend time with Him instead of having to be almost coerced? See, these first three verses, there's few places in Scripture that tell us more about divine love. David Allen Hubbard writes that Love, divine love, is constant in all circumstances, 
present even while the people are enmeshed in their idolatry. You want to know the power of God's love and grace and mercy? Just consider this. God's love and grace and mercy toward us does not decrease even when we are unfaithful. He's, he's constant. He's consistent. He loves us. His love will never diminish despite the fact we've probably earned God's love to decrease, right? I mean, if we want to think about it in those terms. What do we deserve? It's not this. It's not this. God gives us so much more than we deserve. So Hosea takes back his unfaithful bride. Number two, God takes back his unfaithful people. This is really a comparison with verses 2 and 3 and verses 4 and 5. And this is the third instance now of foreshadowing of how Israel's uh, future is going to hold uh, reconciliation with God. So just as Hosea was commanded to love Gomer again, despite her unfaithfulness, now God is going to restore Israel to His favor in spite of their sin. And so Israel was for a long time almost destined to be deprived of these things. You look in verse 4, it says, The sons of Israel will remain for many days. Just like Hosea told Gomer, you will stay with me for many days. They're going to be without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. This is a picture of uh, worship and all the things they were doing. And so they're going to be without those things. They're going to be deprived of those things. Government, no independent self-government or princely power. No priestly function or divine service. No prophetic instruction or response from God. And, and by the way, it's really important to note here that today some of the most able Jewish expositors realize that these predictions are applicable to their own case and the existing circumstances of their nation. They, they see it. Those who are paying attention will look at this, even in the Jewish nation today, and say, well, there you go. I see why, this is why things are happening the way they are. And, and they, they realize the significance of this in their everyday lives. So look at the, the conclusion. How, how does this end? The Bible says in verse 5, afterward, and then it uses the phrase at the end of verse 5, in the last days, it's a reference to the time when Israel is going to be reconciled. So after Israel's period of isolation, the nation is going to repent and seek the Lord and not seek idols. Because, see, they had previously taken God's gifts and blessings for granted, and they're not going to do that anymore. In the end, they're going to return with a healthy sense of fear and trembling. Look at verse 5 where the Bible says they're going to return, seek the Lord, their God, David, their King. They will come trembling to the Lord. So you know what that looks like? It comes all the way back to the, uh, the illustration I, I mentioned at the very beginning about um, the spiritual illustration of when we sin against God and we seek His forgiveness... We're, we're under conviction, we're, we're heartbroken for our sin, we're, we're, we're upset by the fact that we have sinned against God. 
and we're humble in our attitude and our posture and we're seeking His forgiveness and we're, we're praying that He will still love us and still show us grace and mercy even though we know in our hearts He will because He never changes. But our heart is contrite and humble and then uh, we get to a point perhaps where that humility fades away and we just presume, well, God, yeah, He'll forgive us. He's forgiving. He, he'll, he'll do that. He'll always be gracious. But the Bible says they, they had taken those things for granted. They're going to return back to a healthy sense of fear and trembling. And, and by the way, Paul would even write in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and following, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He used those exact words. Because we're, we're supposed to be humble before the Lord. So the king that Israel's going to return to is the Messiah. You see that, that little foreshadowing there? They're going to seek, they're going to return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Who is re referred to in, in Scripture as the son of David? It's Jesus, the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. And see, when it says here in the end of this verse, they're going to return not only, they're going to come trembling to the Lord, they're going to come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness. So David Allen Hubbard again writes that goodness is not only a recovery of fellowship with God, but the restoration of all His generosity in the produce of the land which Israel's foolishness had credited to the idols, to the Baals that they were worshiping. That, that's how foolish they had become, where they were worshiping these idols and then attributing all their good fortune to the idols and not to God. But that's going to be a thing of the past. They're going to return not only to the Lord, but to His goodness in the last days. So this story, the way it's, happened thus far we can parallel the story of Israel with our story today are there times and ways where we take God for granted where we presume on his faithfulness and his love and his kindness and his grace and mercy and we just assume that yeah what it doesn't matter I know we messed up but God will take care of it because that's you know that's who he is. That's what he does. Well, yeah, that's true. That's not the point. The point is what's going on in our heart when we take notice of that. Are we still humble before him? Are we still thankful? Are we still under conviction? Are we still aware of the gravity of the situation? Do we still see this profound truth of how good God really is or have we gotten so used to the fact that he is good and forgives and loves have we gotten so used to that that it's just so commonplace that it's not that big a deal L let me just tell you this and I, and I feel like you know it but I just want to say it out loud anytime God shows us His love and kindness, His grace and mercy, His forgiveness of sin. 
any time that happens, ever, it's a miracle. It's a, it's a true miracle that God would ever look at me and know my heart and still say to me, I love you. I forgive you. It's going to be okay. That, that blows my mind. Why, why would He ever say that to me? What, what have I done to possibly deserve that kind of treatment, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of grace when, when I've behaved the way I have and God still looks at me and He says to me, it's forgiven. My grace is sufficient for you. Really? Have we, have we come so far that maybe we have lost the awe of that little transaction? That no matter how sinful our hearts have become or, or still are, even though we're being transformed day by day, sanctified, being made more into the image of Christ, there's still sinfulness there. Have we lost the, the mind-blowing moment of forgiveness and, and grace and kindness? And God, I, I, don't, I don't get it. How can you still treat me this way? How can you, how can you still love me this much when I've behaved like that? I, I, I don't understand. How is that possible? That's the kind of, of realization we've got to come to. We've got to get back to the point where we really objectively, honestly see who we are and then realize, huh, and Jesus still loves me. He, he, still, he, he still covers my sin. He, he still uh, has grace and mercy for me. That verse in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it's not just a nice sentiment. It really is true. His grace really is sufficient. It's, it's abundant. And, and it won't ever change. That's where we've got to return to, to understand the importance of this passage. God's grace and mercy and love when we repent and return to the Lord with fear and trembling and we seek the face of our Savior Jesus Christ He's right there waiting to say welcome home Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word for more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.